this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. I'm recording this from the Kingdom of Tonga. In this episode, we'll hear about the story of sailing mischief from Ariana Zai, who, with her boyfriend... Christian Hightower bought a boat in Granada, but engine problems caused them to stop in St. Martin during the height of the 2017 hurricane season, and they were hit hit by the Category 5 hurricane Irma, which destroyed their boat. They were evacuated by the U.S. military to Puerto Rico, and then found themselves in the path of Hurricane Maria, which Christian and his friend rode out. So within weeks, they experienced the devastation of two of the most powerful Atlantic hurricanes on record. We'll also hear a sample from our previous podcast guest, Annie Dyke of HaveWindWillTravel.com, and a sample of her first book, Cult of a Sailor word from our title sponsor, Mantis Marine. The mini scuba, that's an awesome setup. It's really set up well for boaters. You have a nice lightweight package. The whole thing's less than 15 pounds, but it still gives you a good, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so underwater. So if you need to do any of your maintenance items on your boat, you just want to do like some spear fishing or some lobster fishing. So at 30 feet, you can get about 15, 20 minutes. But if you're only at like, say, 10 feet, so maybe you're just working on the prop or the hull, you can probably get close to 30 minutes. It's a nice setup. It comes with, you have the tank, you have the regulators, it has a, um, a primary and a, and a secondary. It comes with a simple harness. It's a small two-liter tank, so you don't have a lot of weight to to try to offload. And we throw everything into a nice backpack, so everything fits in the backpack, so it's easy and portable. You can get all your Mantis gear at mantismarine.com. We'll start out uh, with uh, the story of sailing mischief. And Ariana is in Florida when I interviewed her back in September 2017. And... Her boyfriend, Christian, and his best friend, Kyler, stayed in Puerto Rico and were stranded in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. And we talk about the logistics that Christian and Kyler faced in the weeks after Hurricane Maria hit. So are you in Florida right now? Is that right? But my boyfriend Christian and Kyler are still in Puerto Rico. Tyler, you said, is uh, the other person in Puerto Rico? Yeah, uh, that's his best friend, Kyler, with a K. Like Tyler, oh. but Kyler. Kyler, okay. So Kyler and Christian are still in Puerto Rico. Correct. It was what I saw in the movie. Have you had much contact with them since uh, you departed Puerto Rico? Um, I once I left Puerto Rico, it was still about a week before Maria had hit. So I was talking to them right before then. Um, once Maria hit, I hadn't talked to them about four days afterwards. Then they were able to call me on Wi-Fi for about 15 minutes. And then from there, it was another three days. And last night was the first night that I actually talked to them on a phone. And that was through the, uh, the place where they're staying, the people that they're staying with, neighbor 
has a phone that works sometimes. So oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's kind of and and they said it's it's getting to get really bad. They're like about an about two hours like normal drive. Like if there was no issues to get to San Juan where they're at. So with the issues, they said it would take them several hours and they would probably have to walk partially there as well. So it would even maybe even take them a whole day to almost two days. So to get to where the relief is in near San Juan is almost like not really practical for them currently. Yikes. Do they do they have water, electricity? Um they're said that the their water and food supplies is going down, um, which is not so lovely. Um, but they do have a generator, and um, the people that they're staying with have a generator, but there's also hardly any gas. So they run the generator for, like, two hours a day or whatever it is just so they can, you know, cook food and uh, charge their, you know, phones if hopefully in the hope that they're going to get some sort of service eventually. Oh, okay. Yeah, they said it was getting kind of prickly down there as well. A lot of uh, the crime's not uh, – is a bit kind of not so good. A lot of people are looting and things like that, which you kind of tend to see in cases like this. Do they have any plans to go back to the U.S., or is that um, possible? The current, hopefully, is what, they're by, like, it's called Anaguila, I can't really pronounce it right, airport, they're closer to the airport that's, uh, like, on the other side of the island. We have them booked for flights home on the 17th of October. That's the soonest the flight that we can get booked is the 17th of October. And, you know, it's only, it's the 29th, so there, it's going to be several days in that, and so hopefully we're hoping that um, we might see some more progress with that, because they are about a five-hour walk from the other airport, but the other, all the airports are, you know, really badly damaged, and there's hardly any flights going in and out. They said that they, uh, yesterday, airplanes did land on the tarmac, but they were just taking out, you know, the sick elderly who needed to get out there immediately. And it's good to hear, though, we have, um, the one thing that's been really nice, though, is I don't know if you've ever heard of Spot. I know they're kind of more common on, like, for, they're used for, like, uh, people on sailboats or on hikes. It's like a satellite, uh, it's not a cell phone, but it tracks your location through a satellite, and they have, like, two buttons. One says, like, I'm okay, I'm safe, and, like, the other one's, like, help me type deal, and it tracks through the satellite. So they have that. But there's no way to, like, respond back to them or anything. So it's just, like, we have, like, every day we get, like, we're okay. We'll contact you as soon as we get, if we can, type deal. And, you know, so it's been nice to see that. So we can actually see their pinpoint of, the like, the location. I can be watching them where they're at. You, Christian, and Kyler were on a boat in St. Martin. And maybe you could take us back to uh, what happened in St. Martin and why uh, Christian and Kyler and you went to San Juan. Um, So it started, me and Christian started our sailing journey down in Grenada. We bought a boat and wanted to sail the Caribbean. We figured that we, you know, we knew the risk of sailing during hurricane season, but in the last several hurricane seasons, they haven't really been that bad. So we thought we'll be fine. You know, we you know, we're just going to go for it. We had made it all the way up to um, about Antigua, and then our motor on our sailboat stopped working, which I know it's a sailboat, so it's not, you know, the end of the world. But the part that we needed was in St. Martin, 
So we decided that we were going to sail the sail over to St. Martin. So once we got to St. Martin, it was still, uh, we had the update that um, Irma was coming, but it was only like, a, it was still like a tropical storm when we had arrived in St. Martin. And so we didn't think much of it. Within that like two to three days that we were there, it had jumped from a tropical storm to a category three hurricane. Um, so we were like, okay, what should we do? Uh, the, at that time, it was forecasted to hit the Virgin Islands as well and the lower islands. So we felt like, okay, we don't, to go up is not that safe, to go down is not that safe. Like if we went down, we were going to have to sail all the way back down and we didn't have um, the part to our motor still. So we were kind of risking trying to sail all that way back down, downwind, you know, that entire time against it. And so we, we figured we were better off kind of buggering down and getting into a marina versus, you know, fighting the wind on the way back with no motor. So I, I had contemplated back and forth if we should fly out. My Our parents were kind of starting to get worried for us. They were like, maybe you guys should fly out. We were kind of like, we'll be okay. And Kyler, his Christ, Kyler is Christian's best friend since uh, they were kids, young kids. He had already been planning to come and visit us on like a week after this like it had been on like we had planned for him to fly down like a month before all of this had happened well Kyler and said well do you guys need help getting the boat ready I'd be more than happy to come down and help you guys and get this boat kind of figured out um and we're like yes we could definitely do it you know this is, was our first real like you know kind of buckering down for a hurricane and that kind of situation so he flew in two days before Irma was supposed to hit he kind of helped us get everything ready. We originally had the plan where we were staying. It was at the Island Waterworld Marina. Uh, we had planned that we were going to, uh, at first they said uh, they were going to let us stay actually in the building during during the hurricane. But once it had upgraded to a five, they're like, no, you guys you guys cannot stay in, in this building. So we had to scramble and find a hotel. And so we pretty much figured out where we could stay. We had booked through actually hotels.com and once we got to a hotel, they actually said we have no reservation for you guys. And this was like the day before, this is on Monday and Irma hit like Tuesday early morning. And so we were scrambling to find even a hotel and all the hotels had been booked, like completely booked. Like we went to six different hotels, like door to door at all capacity were full. And we finally found um, Alegria, which was right next to Moho Beach, the, the famous beach right there. And luckily they, they had, they let us take a room and we were so happy about that. But we had brought, cause we were spent, we just spent all day like in a taxi pretty much trying to ride around, figuring out where we could go. We had all our stuff, as much stuff that we could bring off the boat with us. Still in the hopes that, that mischief would be floating when we got back, but that didn't happen as planned either. So we ended up in the hotel for most of the hurricane and we were in the Alegria from, we stayed the night, we got there Monday, we got evacuated out of Puerto Rico, I mean, out of St. Martin to Puerto Rico on that Sunday. So we still had several days after where it was complete devastation and it was, it was very intense. Like during the hurricane, we were in this uh, beautiful green, newly remodeled hotel, um, big like concrete and you could just feel the entire building just shaking just completely shaking and we were on the fourth floor and there was a, a one floor above us it was a five floor hotel the the floor above us the roof came off 
and the um, sliding glass doors and door had completely ripped off and went all the way through. So we were getting just buckets of water coming in through the ceiling. Like we had about like three to four inches of water at our feet during the entire time. And you could just, it just sounded like things were breaking and crashing. Like there was a, like a big train was driving, you know, right next to the building. It, it seemed like, and what was so surreal as well is like we were able since Irma went right over St. Martin that we got to walk out during the eye of the storm. And I think that was one of the most eerie things I've ever experienced in my life. Um, it's just completely calm and there's, you know what I mean? It's just quiet. And, you know, after gone through hours, you're just hearing like banging and like crazy noises to hear, hearing just almost like silence. And that was, that lasted about 45 minutes. And then the wind started picking up again. And then with the hurricane, you know, it, it is doing a whole rotation. So we were getting the one on the first, when it first hit us, you're getting the wind from one direction. So all the roofing's coming off on one end. And then when it, it came around the second time, once the eye had passed over, now the wind shifted and is coming from the other side. So now you're getting all the debris from the other way. So it, it was really, really, really intense. And then after we had made it through all of that, we were able to go see the boat and kind of walk around. And it, it was, it was very sad. It, it was like everything was completely destroyed. There was boats in the middle of the road. There was, I would say if you were, I would say like one in every hundred boat had maybe survived it. Maybe like St. Martin, it's completely devastated and it, it was just bad. Like for the sailing community down there, it, it was, it was very sad. Like it didn't matter if you even went did the precautions of trying to go on the on the hard or anything like that. Like almost every single boat was completely devastated or had some sort of damage. You know, masses snapped, hole, holes in the hull. Like it it was bad. How long were you at the hotel? We were at the hotel, so we had we checked in on Monday. We didn't. We left on Sunday. But one thing that we were very lucky where our hotel was in the location we were at. Since we were right by Moho Beach, we literally had a visual of the the hotel completely the entire time. I mean, not the, of the hotel, the airport. I'm so sorry, the airport. So we were able to watch when, like, when the first airplane landed on the strip and things like that. Um, we were able to see all of that happening, you know, right there. So we were, we could, you know, we walked, we walked to the to the airport one day, and we had still people. Our hotel was completely. The managers were very nice. Uh, um, they let a lot of their staff stay in the hotel as well with us, like uh, throughout the building. And so we had a, we met so many locals, so many people who had worked there. Even um, there was only probably a couple of, uh, I guess, tourists as well there. But they did an amazing job overall. I thought they, you know, they were they still fed us. Our hotel, our generator did did last pretty good so they would turn the generator on for like the, the couple hours a day just so you could charge whatever devices you need to charge and their staff there actually did a lot of cooking we were very lucky as well in the fact that we were right next to um it's called sunset grill i want to say it's a bar comp- right adjacent to the hotel and they had just got a shipment of food so we were able to uh they were cooking the food from the restaurant so we, we still had a decent amount of food and supplies before the hurricane hit. We are from Florida, so I feel like we had a little bit of a, 
hurricane mentality prepness, we had went and bought like 15 um, five liter jugs of fresh water. So we were, we, we did very good on water, but it was almost out by the time we left. Um, when we got evacuated, we had friends that got evacuated. We got evacuated on Sunday and some of the people that were staying at the hotel got evacuated on the following Monday. And they had told us though that that day, um, the, the generator caught fire on that Monday. So the generator was not going to be working anymore. And that then all of a sudden the sewage was starting to really back up after that point. So we were, we overall, the timing that we had, we were very lucky to get out when we did because it was only getting worse. And you could feel though day by day, the host, like the environment of people, you know what I mean? At the, at, after the hurricane happened, everyone was, you know, you're just happy that everyone lived. Like we were the whole, I would say 50% of the, the hotel or more was completely damaged. So everyone in our hotel was alive. So, you know, you felt that like relief. Everyone immediately after the hurricane was like, you know, very like happy and came together type deal. But as the days kind of went on and no one had still been evacuated yet, you could feel the tension though, like rising, you know, you could feel, feel that pressure of like, okay, you know, we're not, you know, right afterwards we're getting these huge plates of food. You know, and by the end of it, you know, the smaller and smaller amount of food, you know what I mean? It kind of just started to dwindle. So I, I really cannot imagine how how they are doing now. Um, I feel so bad because now news has completely shifted from St. Martin and Antigua and all those other islands to Puerto Rico, which I'm not saying, yes, Puerto Rico needs just as much help too. But I also feel so bad because St. Martin, they're, you know, it's going to take them several years as well to rebound from that and we had met some amazing people and lifelong friends that that you know they're 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 from st martin and their house was completely devastated and they're going to be living in a hotel in that hotel for weeks until they can get back on their feet or whatever they can and that hotel is not really that livable currently like the our bed we had to sleep on like everything was just soaking wet because everything's you know coming from it was completely, the water was coming in from the ceilings, so the bed was wet, everything was just damp constantly, and then you couldn't take a shower, which was also, uh, to be in your filth is not such a lovely thing at all, so our first shower that we took felt like absolutely heaven, so I just can't imagine how they still are and how things are still happening. So I really hope that people can still remember like St. Martin and everything, but still keep a light on Puerto Rico. There's just been so much damage with these last couple of hurricanes. Okay. When did you visit uh, Mischief for the first time after Hurricane Irma? We had visited her uh, the following day, so it was on Wednesday. We were able to go and see Mischief. Um, we hitched a ride. We had walked as far as we could, and then someone had was driving in that direction. So we we're like, "Please, can we can we get a ride with you?" And they said, "Sure." So we were lucky enough. We were pretty far away from her, though. Uh, it was probably about like a twenty to twenty twenty five minute drive to Mischief. So if we would have walked that, I think it would have taken us at least a couple of hours. Um, so we were lucky that someone was, uh, was willing to drive us over there. Once we had gotten over there and uh, saw Mischief, she, uh, we were walking out because um, it was the 
it's a budget marine is like in front and then you walk out behind is where the docks are hold on if you give me one second let me when you walked out we walked out to the the boats and you just mischief wasn't even there like you couldn't see her and my like first reaction was i i literally just stopped and i sat down where i was and you just get all these waves of emotions because we put you put so much time and effort and love into something. Um, we had just you know got the boat in in January. We had you know re you know put her on the hard, repainted the hall. You know you just put so much time and effort. You know and this is your home. Someone had made the comment to uh, to me that don't worry guys, it's it's just a boat. It's not your. It's not like you lost your home. And I was like, no, it is we lost our home. I was like, this is, I, we live on this. I mean, this is what we've been doing for the last eight months. This is our life. This is what we put so much of our effort and passion into for the last eight months. And then to tell me that it's, it doesn't matter. And I think a lot of people don't see that because if you're not in the boating world, you don't understand in a way, you know, living aboard a boat is a little bit different than, you know, just having your weekend trip out on a boat. You know, you, it's your home. You know, just as much as you love your house, you know, we loved mischief just as much as that way, you know, our valuables. We still lost a lot of things. And especially during in a situation like this, your head's not thinking straight. There were so many things that I left on the boat that I wish I didn't. But, you know, we didn't think that she was going to be underwater when we got back to her. We thought we were going to be at least coming back to a floating boat. Like we were definitely under the impression that, okay, she's going to have some damages, you know, maybe the mast snapped or something. But we didn't think the severity that she was that she was in. But she she was completely submerged underwater. Uh, there was a couple like consult boats in front of us, like motorboats right in front of us where we were at the marina, and one of the boats had completely flipped right on top of her. So she was completely submerged underwater. Though her mast was snapped as well. Though the cleats in the like the cement. Um, were completely ripped out of the cement. The cleats in the cement where we had tied down, completely ripped out. The pilings were completely ripped out, which also I think is so crazy. Um, one of the staff members did stay at Island Waterworld, and he said he went and checked on the boats during the eye of the storm. And he said that all the boats that were in that marina were still tied down. They had shifted a little bit, but all the boats were still floating, and they were okay. And he said... It was the second half that completely just wiped everything out. Um, we had one of the locals told us that he clocked a gust of 252 mile per hour winds. So, it, it, you know, there, there's that's not a hurricane, you know what I mean? That's like worst hurricane ever in history, you know what I mean? We never thought we would be put in a situation where we were in the worst hurricane in history, you know what I mean? The night before, we kept, like, turning the TV on, and I would get, you know, flustered because I, I would turn the TV on, and I'd be watching, you know, they're updating, saying, you know, this is a textbook textbook hurricane, and this is, you know, we've never seen this eye is completely perfect. And, you know, I would get all anxious, and I would have to turn the TV off because I would be getting so nervous. And then, you know, 20 minutes would pass, and I'd be like, I need to turn the TV back on because I need to know what's going on. So, you know, you're, it was just like this constant thing of, you know, people are saying this is going to be the worst one in history, it's about to hit you, and you just don't think you're going to be in that, you know, you, we thought hurricanes were possible, but we never thought it was going to be that intense, it was just completely crazy, and it's just still devastating to see our, 
our boat completely gone. We do want to go back there. That was kind of the reason why the boys stayed in Puerto Rico. I needed to fly home just because it does do a lot, I personally, for me, on your like psyche or your mental state. It's a lot to go through, and I, I really wanted to come back home to my, my family and see them. But the plan was I was going to fly back out to Puerto Rico in like two to three weeks. And the boys were staying. One of our followers from YouTube had reached out to us and said that he had a boat and was willing. If he wanted to like help him, you know, spruce it up a little bit, we could sail down to St. Martin and check on our boat after everything had passed. So that's why the boys had stayed with, his name's Earl, and was helping on his boat. And I was going to fly back. And then we were going to sail down to St. Martin in weeks time. But now that Maria has hit and completely devastated Puerto Rico, that completely shifts our plans as well now so not quite sure how did Earl's boat do um actually it ended up pretty good I only talked to Christian briefly about it they said they went and checked on it the boat came out like unscathed um they were in the mangroves but there was probably he said there was probably about 40 vote 40 boats in the mangroves and about 20 of them are completely ruined so he said that they were just, you know, I think in situations like this, especially in hurricanes, it's just by luck. You know what I mean? You can go and go extreme, you know, do everything you can in your power to make sure your boat was tied down. And personally, I think it's just all by luck. You know what I mean? It, it you, Everyone puts as much as they can into it. Um, the people next to us when we were in um, the marina in St. Martin, the guy had went and spent a thousand dollars. The day before Irma had hit, $1,000 on chafe guards, chains, ropes, lines, you know what I mean, all that. And his boat is completely devastated, you know what I mean, as well. Like, he, it's non-salvageable. And so, you know, you can literally do everything that you can in your power to tie down your boat. And for me, yes, do those precautions 100%. Make sure it's done as much as you can. But after that, you know what I mean, I think if you're just at the power, you know, at the mercy of mother nature if if it's going to end up destroyed or not you know because we don't really ever know if, if it's going to end up if your boat does better than the guy next to you or not what were some of the preparations you guys did in st martin um well the number one thing was we also so we didn't have a motor which was a big issue for us too um so the way st martin is i don't know if you've ever seen the layout of it it has like the lagoon on the inside it's quite a really big uh sailing community down in St. Martin. Um, but the lagoons on the inside, we had been asking the officials when we first checked into St. Martin, we were like, so where, where do you go for a hurricane? Would you recommend that kind of thing? He's like, well, number one thing, just get your boat inside the lagoon. So to get into the lagoon, there's like a drawbridge you have to go in. And then if you want to keep going further in, there's a second drawbridge. Well, that was also very hard for us because like I said before, we had no motor. So we had to use our dinghy and push our boat with our dinghy about four miles to this marina. A lot of the marinas also were completely taken as well. Um, we had first searched. We first, before deciding that we were going to move the boat in, we looked if there was any mangroves because generally mangroves are a little bit better. But in St. Martin, there isn't really that many in that area. And so then we decided, okay, we'll go into this marina. Well, that was a completely challenge in itself to get the boat into the marina. And once we did, um, we also, since we were staying at Island Waterworld, which is really nice, there was the store right there. We also went and bought um, chains, chafe guards, and a bunch of ropes. Uh, we had made friends with this guy named Jake, who his boat was on the hard. 
and he gave us extra fenders because he was going to need them. He gave us extra fenders and um, extra um, line as well. So we just tied down as much as we could. We put even even when we were at the marina, we put out our anchor as far as we could. We dropped it as far out as we could and just put a bunch of fenders around and lines like everywhere. We had two pilings in the front of like more like three pilings kind of in the front and we tied a chain down at the bottom and a line at the top so that would still give enough uh, for the storm surge because that's also another thing you have to take into account is you can't tie your lines down too tight because if you get you know a 10-foot storm surge it's just going to end up ripping the lines out so I feel like that was also a challenge as well on top of everything was just figuring out the dynamics of that especially that me and Christian hadn't ever done anything like this ever before either this being our first time we had a lot of help the manager of the marina that we were at was very nice like she would she was coming around to each boat and making sure that you know everyone was tying down correctly that there was enough space in between each boat and you know which way was better to do it or not to do it so that was extremely helpful as well just to have other people who had gone through a this before and were able to direct us in the right way on how to do things. And what did you take off the boat? Um, well, we had brought, so we brought our generators because we thought that would be good to keep just in case because we had a little Honda 2000 generator. We had brought a generator with us. We had brought like a several, you know, a couple pairs of like clothing and that kind of things. We had, I brought all our safety gear. Um, that we had on the boat. So all our harnesses, like I had a life jacket harness for each of us, the three of us. I also brought, you know, all our like flashlights and things like that. And as well as I, we already had like a good amount of supplies of canned foods. Cause you know, on a filigone boat, you have a lot of, you know, things like, like canned foods. So we brought pretty much our entire pantry with us because we just didn't know what to expect. You know, we didn't know if we were going to be able to just, you know, go walk back on mischief and sail away or if we were going to be stuck there for a while there's other things i wish i would have brought but we brought like since we do uh, the youtube channel i brought all my electronics you know in every every piece of electronic i could fit into my bag i did um that was like our biggest concern and then just water and that was pretty much the big like staple things that we had brought and our boat papers and that pretty much can't do anything else we just took everything off the top of the boat and had put it inside and just hoped for the best after that um but with that once we got evacuated though puerto rico they evacuated us on military planes and when we were leaving um to get evacuated they were like shuffling people out and we had with us we probably had about four between between the three of us we probably had about i would say six bags and that was just pretty much like our life six bags what we had left of once they they had to do searches like hand searches because obviously the airport was completely devastated like we were standing in a parking lot the entire day they were putting other bags like okay which bag do you want to carry on and what what other ones are are going to go and so you know we you know I chose my electronics Christian grabbed his other bag and Kyler did as well and then they they started putting our other bags onto this like luggage cart and we kind of assumed okay they're going to put our bags on the plane with us they actually we didn't get to keep our bags they left they didn't tell us that we weren't going to be allowed to have our bags that we weren't going to get our bags they just once we took off they're like yeah you guys aren't good 
your bags are in St. Martin Airport will let you know if you guys will get your bags back. So, Yikes. Yeah, like we have so much. I would have, the thing that makes me so upset about that too is if they would have just told me that we weren't going to be able to, we were only allowed one bag and that is it, I would have rearranged things. Like we left a couple of electronics behind, a couple of paperwork and things like that, which I would have put in another bag. Once we had got to Puerto Rico though, it wasn't just us that, that had happened to. We were talking to other people the entire time because they kind of, once we had got to Puerto Rico, they directed us to hotels to stay in. So a lot of the evacuee, evacuees were all staying in the same hotel. When we had got there, the people were even saying, this one lady, she said she had put, they, did, they didn't tell them either, and she put all her, her jewelry was in one of her other bags. She's like, if they would have told me, I would have taken my jewelry out. You know what I mean? And I talked to another gentleman who said he had about like $2,000 in cash in another bag because he thought he would be able to get that, you know, he had taken all his money out that he could and all this and that, and he had put it in one of his other bags. And they they didn't tell us. So my thing is they must have all this luggage just sitting there. And, and I'm really not surprised if it, if it hasn't been looted or anything like that because the people left so many valuables and things like that, which I know in the grand scheme of things, we are very grateful for our lives and we are so happy that we are alive and here. You know what I mean? Like it's just material things at the end of the day. But it is it is still frustrating because that's all you have left. is. <laughs> That was Ariana from the Sailing Channel, Sailing Mischief. And since they lost their boat, they've, they've done a few more videos, uh, including one that was as recent as two months ago. So you'd be hard-pressed to find another channel that has more complete footage of the uh, devastation uh, of Hurricanes Irma and Maria among the sailing vloggers. give you a quick update on where they are now after a word from our title sponsor. Mantis Anchor's founder, Greg Cutson, tells why they created a modular design that can be easily stowed away for their revolutionary anchor. Well, you literally have sometimes just a few seconds to deploy something. And that something you deploy better work. And sometimes it better work at short scope. And when we want to make an anchor modular, it's not just because we want you to have a spare for a hurricane, you know, be able to put away a monster. But we want you to be able to have a spare for an emergency, which, meaning a spare anchor needs to have the same setting performance as your primary. That was kind of the, the thought. So we wanted to have, we didn't, we didn't want to change the design, we wanted to have the main anchor as something that is modular, so you can use it for a variety of applications. You can get Mantis anchors and their other innovative sailing gear at mantismarine.com or other fine retailers so as of my recording here uh, they have not bought a boat and they are living in South Florida they're both from Florida both uh, Ariana and Christian and I think just recently uh, Ariana sailed on sailing La Vagabond's new catamaran the Outremer catamaran and uh, so we might be seeing more of Ariana on sailing La Vagabond in their videos. I don't know if that's come out yet. I think it has not at the time of the recording. Have their videos at Sailing Mischief on YouTube and their Facebook page. 
end our August 2018, episode 51 of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast with a reading from Annie Dykes, Salt of a Sailor. And, uh, you know, it's my hope that you guys will send Annie some emails at havewindwilltravel.com and encourage her to read some more of her work. She tries to write a funny blog uh, about her travels under sail. She does a great job of it, and we'd love to hear more from Annie, uh, not just her many great books, uh, but also hear more of a great blog. So if you give her encouragement, maybe she'll make the time for us at the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Annie took a step back from her YouTube channel, which if you heard our episode with her earlier, uh, that she really was working herself to the bone on that with uh, sometimes twice weekly episodes, uh, went to weekly and then she took a break uh, because, you know, it doesn't pay the bills and it was a lot of work. Uh, a weekly episodes are a full-time job. That's why on uh, the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel, I've only committed to monthly uh, vlogs because of the tremendous amount of work that is. Uh, this month's uh, vlog is to the Forbidding Isle of Wahooka that very few cruisers visit because supposedly the anchorages are so treacherous. You'll have to see how I survive, and that's on uh, Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. Monthly vlogs come out on the first Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you want to know about it, you want YouTube to tell you about it, ring that bell notification icon. Otherwise, you may not know about it. Here's an expert from Annie Dykes, Salt of a Sailor, the true origins of a durable but not-so-dainty sailor, available on Amazon. The Grenadines, Philip said, casually, as if it was like going to the movies or out for a bagel. The way he said it made them sound closer. He made all things far away sound closer. For how long, I asked, kicking myself immediately right after I did, like I was some lovesick schoolgirl. Summer camp? How long will you be gone, Billy? Will you write? Ten days, he replied. Ten days, I thought. And just like some lovesick schoolgirl, the thought made me want to pout. I had only just met this man, and I could already tell that ten whole days without him might feel like a small form of torture. Ten days, I repeated, not knowing what else to say. I had never met a man who had been to the Grenadines. I had never met a man who had traveled at all, really, other than up to the hunting camp, much less a man who did it consistently and to such far-flung places. I had never met a man quite like him, and trust me, in the reckless months that led up to him, I had met plenty. Philip was curious, but a bit dismissive of me. Me, the leggy blonde, who usually lorded over the fraternity brothers and navy boys at the bar with ease, a friend who knew I had wasted far too much time already with those types, encouraged me to upgrade from the toddlers, she called them, to a man like Philip. Like me, Philip was newly single, but where I was running around like those kids in the Willy Wonka factory, snatching, tasting, and trying everything, he was sort of coolly sashaying about, like a cat. His indifference made me crave his intention even more. Among the dopey, bounding dogs who often circled me, he stood out. Philip was educated, put together, capable of conversing about things other than the Alabama game. The man exuded so much confidence it rubbed off on you. He was also a lawyer, like me, but not the overly cocky kind I was used to. He was assured of himself, but in no way judgmental. You got the sense that every man or woman who walked up to him, slick, pinstripe, corporate type to a dirty, homeless beggar, would get the same handshake. 
When he first walked up to me, the phrase, I'll have what he's having, came to mind. After just a few minutes of focused conversation, I was enthralled by him. Philip was direct, almost to the point of being off-putting. If he had something to say, he would say it. If he didn't, he would say nothing. I struggled with it at first, unsure whether I should interpret his frequent silence as disinterest, but I soon recognized it merely as a strong sense of self. Words were not wasted between us. It was unnerving, almost, how quickly we fell into an ease of honesty and companionship. What he's having soon evolved into where he's going. The man was so traveled. Philip had been to Kuwait, Somalia, Singapore, and now the Grenadines? I couldn't point these places out on a map, but I certainly didn't want him to know that. I didn't want to risk asking a question that would reveal my lack of knowledge about in which hemisphere or even what ocean the Grenadines might lie. Assuming it was an ocean, not a sea or a gulf or whatever the correct term for those rare bodies of water that exist out there in the great beyond. The Grenadines. For some reason, an image of desert storm came to mind. Dust, tents in the desert, chickens clucking around, and I knew instantly it had to be wrong. So very wrong. Well, probably seven days on the boat, ten days total for the whole trip, Philip said. Thankfully, he had brushed the desert dust away and brought me back to the bar. I was hoping the more he spoke, the more I would become enlightened, but now I was only further confused, intrigued, enraptured. On the boat? What boat? Whose boat? What kind of boat? Desert storm flashed again, and I stabbed in the dark, hoping out of the thick froth of my confusion would emerge some form of an intelligent question. Your boat? No, a friend's. I'm going to stay with them on their boat for a week in the Grenadines. Phew, irrelevant inquiry. Don't blow it, Annie, I told myself. But as hard as I was trying to focus on our exchange, to say the right things, ask the right questions, I was swept away again by the words that tumbled off his lips. The Grenadines. They sounded so exotic. How could I carry on a conversation with this, with this man? I was a lawyer, sure. I had a degree and whatnot and had clawed my weight up from dirt poor beginnings, but I still had the dirt under my fingernails to prove it. Among my hoity-toity peers, I often felt that I knew only just enough to pretend to know a lot. A quick wit and disarming personality can be just that, disarming. As they scramble to get their armor back together, they'll forget to peek under mine. When it came to dirty, rugged life experiences, though, I was rich. But as for world travel, real out there, beyond the great travel, I was still dirt poor. I knew nothing of these foreign places, these remote adventures, these... Another martini? Thankfully, I was rescued again. This time it was the bartender. Yes, please, and a Cosmo as well. Extra lime. The words came out before I even had time to think about it. Philip eyed me curiously, watching me as I knocked the last splash of my first martini back and met his gaze, my eyes squinting ever so slightly. What? they said. A Cosmo and a martini? he asked. Now seemingly intrigued by me. Me? The one imagining chickens pegging at the dirt when he said the grenadines. Good, I thought. Finally back on familiar turf booze and sultry flirting from a pretty blonde at the bar. Since the divorce, I was the queen of that realm. I didn't know how to compete with the Grenadines, with ten days abroad, friends with sailboats, remote exotic locations, anything of that kind. But I did know I liked this man, and I now had his attention. In my arena, on my turf. Time to break out the catnip. Sure, salty and sweet, I quit. I like everything, I added suggestively, a gleam dancing in my eye. You ever find yourself in need of a hot blonde number to start making these trips to the grenadines and whatnot with you, you know where to find her. I brushed my body against his, reaching for my fresh martini and looking a salty bead from the rim before taking my first sip. I watched him watch me, thinking he wasn't sure exactly what to say, what the appropriate response would be, or so I imagined that's what he was thinking. But as the seconds passed, us eyeing each other easily in comfortable silence, I could tell he wasn't worried at all about what was appropriate. He was simply enjoying the moment. Pondering me, he smiled, a genuine sexy smile, 
raised his own glass of some dark liquor with a sliver of lemon and tipped it at me with a regal nod of his head. Touché. I kid you not, that was our first exchange. The night we met, there was talk of a sailboat and the grenadines. That evening, I was poised to set sail to southern climates and salty, sweet adventures before our relationship had even begun. I was 29, freshly divorced and running like a wild stallion when Philip met me, jumping and bucking in the vast freedom I had recently found, unsure what to do with it all. Molding it into a boat and sailing it with him down to the Grenadines sounded like a great start. But I was the easy sell. Being a bit more cautious and still smarting from his own separation, it took Philip some time to grow comfortable with the fact that he might find himself again spending every day with the same person, or the more frightening thought that he might want to. But once he wise to my awesomeness and realized I truly wanted no commitment, we started to get serious about it. And I do mean it, not each other. I'm not sure still if what we could have or should be called serious, or called anything for that matter. When we get, what we got serious about was this sailing stuff, which was simply the embodiment of our mutual desire to spend our youthful days together, doing the things most put off until retirement. For us, that was to travel and experience the world, to embrace the excitement of living a different day every day. We had both put in several hard years at the office, and it was time to come up for air. The Grenadines only fueled a fire that was already smoldering in Philip. He had wanted his own boat for years, not just any boat, a sailboat, a comfortable, dependable, blue-water cruiser that would take him anywhere he wanted to go. He didn't want to wait until he got old and arthritic to get out there. We were somewhat established professionally, both with some money saved up and still with our health and thirst for adventure. The right time to go was now. We made the mutual decision to adjust our careers accordingly and start getting ruthless with how we spent our time and money. It all needed to be devoted to the higher goal. Money was traded in for more time, and spare time was spent readying ourselves for world travel. While I am confident Philip would have bought and sailed a boat on his own at that point in his life, cue Annie or not, the fact that a vivacious little budding world traveler crashed into his life around the same time was not an undeniable impetus. Having a comfortable, dependable mate to accompany him would naturally make the journey more enjoyable. Wouldn't hurt if she was pretty to boot, but that wasn't a requirement. Now, what did I want? Everything, in a sense, but not the usual one. I had just clawed my way out of a consuming marriage, and I wanted to be free. Free to go, write, and travel. I wanted to see the world and have a kick-ass time doing it. I wanted to ski, climb, kiteboard, scuba dive, and sail. Sure, sail, that too. Anything, too. I wanted to do it all, to immerse myself every day in the new, the now, and the never-before-seen. And Philip, with his equally insatiable thirst for adventure, and okay, his devilishly good looks, did not just step into my life at that time. He hit it, full on, with the force of a Mack truck, crashing into me at the perfect time and sending me skidding and careening onto a new road that was paved with adventure. I gripped the wheel, hugged the asphalt, shifted gears, and took off. I was infected by Philip the moment I met him. Where he was going, I wanted to go. And go we did. After a year or so of various escapades and non-sailing trips together, Philip finally began to suspect what I had known that first night over cocktails and talk of the Grenadines. She could be the one. Not that one, a way better one, the hot little blonde number who would accompany him to the Grenadines and whatnot. His travel mate. Hadn't I told him that on night one? What more did he need? Proof, apparently. It seemed Philip wanted some empirical evidence. He does like to test me, and for good reason. If you're going to travel the world with someone, you want to be sure they can hack it. Philip wanted to be sure I packed light and traveled well, that I assimilated with ease into different environments, cultures, and the occasional dirty, stuffy place. I had to be up for hiking, biking, backpacking, and variety of ethnic culinary experiences. Personally, I believe he was trying to make sure I wasn't a finicky high-maintenance broad. Can't say that I blame him. There are plenty of them out there. After his own personalized series of test trips, Philip was finally starting to think I might fit the bill. I traveled with ease, 
ate happily of whatever was plated before me, and went with the flow. But this whole sailing business was new territory. There's just really no way to know what kind of sailor you're to not to be until you actually get out there and start doing it. I didn't even know how to sail. I'd never done it. What if I got violently seasick? I had been out a time or two on a deep sea fishing trip and had had no problems, but that was it. But that was a passenger on a motor yacht, not a deckhand on a swaying to and fro sailboat. Cruising was a whole nother matter. Philip would tell me, like camping, but on the water. Cruisers had to be ready to get their hands dirty, to endure some or perhaps a lot of discomfort, to quote-unquote rough it, as some might say. It could be hard, painful, and exhausting. You had to be resourceful, rough and tumble, decidedly not dainty. That was his gist. I'm all of those things, I told myself. Hell, I'm the poster child for those things. I had to smile when Philip showed me pictures, had me read articles, and tried to recreate sailing conditions or situations that he thought might help prepare me for this tough world of marine camping. They paled sadly in comparison to my past experiences. My tomboy resume, if you will, my own roughing it days. I really do think it is in my blood because it all started with my dad, a real-life, no-shit, professional bull rider in his day, 12th in the nation at one point, or so I was told, a true grit-and-gristle cowboy to the core. His daddy was a Church of Christ preacher, and his mom, Big Mom, was the stubbornest, cattle-driving, child-rearing, southern stickler I've ever met. She was far tougher than Dad, far tougher than any of us. As a child, I spent my summers in Alabama backwoods as Dad's shadow, stumbling behind his spurs everywhere he went. Going everywhere my dad went often meant squeezing into hay trailers, climbing fences, holding on to the horn, holding on for dear life, and basically just clawing at the dirt to keep up with him. I did what he did, wherever that entailed. The rest of the year, my brother John and I spent in New Mexico with my mom, the stubbornest, bus-driving, child-rearing non-surthener I've ever met. Quite as tough as Big Mom, but twice as me when she needed to be. With Dad granted the fun summers and holidays role, my mom was left with the job of actually raising my brother and me, day in, day out, mostly alone, and mostly broke. She was a hardcore disciplinarian, a great whipper, and despite the daily frustrations of raising two snot-nosed kids, a stern teacher and constant provider. Complaining was not tolerated in our little flat-top orange house in New Mexico. Gripe about mom not buying the sugary tiger cereal and you, that you ate at so-and-so's house and you spent your Saturday morning chained to the kitchen table swallowing tasteless lumps of malt meal with absolutely no sugar or butter in it until every last morsel was gone. Some kids don't get breakfast at all, she would say, and she was right. But having little forced me and John to be creative, to construct our own worlds of entertainment, to build things we couldn't buy, to fix things others would throw away, and to appreciate and save the 75 cents mom would give us for cleaning the bathroom. Yes, the bathroom. Growing up in our house, there was only one. If I cursed her at the time, and believe me, thanks to my brother, I started cursing at a very young age. It's only because I was ignorant. I was young, naive, and stupid, and I didn't understand the valuable life lessons my mom was teaching us. Her tough love laid a thick salt base that enabled my brother and me to grip and grow in the face of adversity, poverty, and sometimes insurmountable odds. With his foundation, I was able to endure a young life full of experiences that humbled me, taught me, and made me this poster child exemplar of toughness that I thought I was, this pre-season stormtrooper who could handle any nautical crisis. Now, had I ever sailed? No. Did I think that mattered? No. I had endured many painful, uncomfortable, arguably dire situations that I felt gave me whatever grit and guile the captain thought I needed to handle this silly sailing stuff. The more Philip kept trying to impress upon me how tough it was going to be, the more I kept reaching back to the rough-and-tumble memories of my youth, some of which Philip knew about, most he did not. But they were mine. They were logged in and itemized, lined up on a mental shelf, standing ready for when I needed to pull one down 
roll it around in my mind, and embrace once again whatever valuable lesson I had learned in that moment. Big Mom, holding me down in a vat of hydrogen peroxide, my skin literally sizzling off, had taught me no matter how awful things may seem, if they're not going to kill you, they're really not that bad. Ah, hush, she'd say. You're alive, ain't you? My dad, pulling my head back with a wad of hair in one hand and a pair of greasy pliers in the other to extract a wiggly, bloody tooth out of my mouth, had taught me. It might hurt at the time, but sometimes you got to cut things loose if they're wanting to go. My brother, John, punching holes in canned biscuit dough and dropping them in the fry daddy to make our homemade version of donuts, had taught me that if you really want something, particularly if folks say you can't have it, you find a way. In all, I felt I had already endured a lifetime's worth of roughing it experiences that made me far more durable than the average bloke. I had parachuted with a sheet, started my car with a screwdriver, swished with hydrogen peroxide. I rode horses, climbed rocks, leapt off cliffs. I fixed things with duct tape, staples, and hot glue. I spent summers in the sleeper of a big rig. I ate malto meal. Surely these were excellent traits for a sailor. Surely I was, quote-unquote, salty enough. I fancied I was. Phillips suspected I could be. Either way, we were going to find out. Travel was the goal. The time to go was now. And all we needed was a boat. I hope you've enjoyed it. That's a chapter from Salt of a Sailor. And you can find it at my blog, Annie Dyke, with HaveWindWillTravel.com. Check it out. See you guys soon. If you have a sailing book that you'd like to read a chapter or two on the podcast, send me an email at LinusWilson at Outlook.com or contact Linus Wilson on Facebook or our Facebook page, which is Slow Boat to the Bahamas or at Slow Boat Sailing via Messenger, and I'll uh, tell you what I need. Unfortunately, there's no audiobook version of Salt of a Sailor, but you can get the audiobook versions of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, Slow Boat to Cuba, and Harry Pigeon's classic Around the World Single-Handed, The Cruise of the Islander, by making a $5 pledge and becoming a captain and associate producer level sponsor on the podcast. At the time of this recording, our captain and associate producer level sponsors that got all three of those uh, audiobooks uh, were Ted Royer, Kevin Yeager, Larry Wilson, and Anders Colvinson. For as little as $1, you can get my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, in audiobook format, and over 40 bonus episodes, including the bonus episode where I talk to sailing mischiefs Ariana in greater detail about their boat and the troubles they had after the hurricanes Maria and Irma. And that bonus episode is available exclusively to patrons at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Thanks for listening. Have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.